0: One of the beautiful challenges of being a parish priest is that you get the chance to participate in weddings. And here at St. George's, you know we have weddings, especially through the spring and summer season. And yesterday, I was uh, my first wedding at Back Springs Hotel. It was gorgeous, and uh, a couple went all out and flowers, and people were dressed so I, uh, so elegant. I felt so friendly. Um, but, you know, you get a chance to sort of meet the couple. You journey with them over this, you know, 8, 12 months. Uh, we do Alpha together. We have special meetings where we discuss what it means to be married. And, and then we get to the day. It's exciting. Often we meet for the first time in person on the day because we usually do it through Zoom or whatnot. And as I was giving the homily that I had prepared for them, I realized that that sermon, in a sense, is the sermon that I, well, that I give today. At least the insight will be the same. Um, if you've been married, or if you had committed deep friendship or relationship, um, you'll know something. That, well, when I say you're, you're going to know it's going to be true, this is true. Um, if you put yourself first, it's not going to work. That just goes. I mean, that's pretty clear. I hope any relationship. But I think marriage. If you put yourself first, it's just not going to work. There's uh, something about uh, having to give, you have to give of the self. In this case, I was sharing with a couple, for your marriage to work. And what's true in that yesterday and at Fast Springs is true for us here. And I think that's what uh, Jesus is saying to us, well, to his friends, and therefore to us in the gospel reading. Uh, We're in chapter 16 of Matthew this morning, and we started at verse 13. So there's 12 verses that we didn't hear this morning. Uh, And that kind of gives you context for this setting of Jesus. You see, from the first 15 chapters, uh, Matthew, this gospel, uh, unraveling the story of who Jesus is. And he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been doing signs and wonders. And then his friends around him who have been following him, I'm sure, have been asking questions of, who is this man? Who is this person really? And Jesus has been trying to show them in different ways Trying to bring them to a moment. In fact, to this moment. Where he asks his friends. Well, who do you say that I am? But I think it's important to see the context of this specific conversation. Because right before he sits down with his friends. Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, if you don't know that word. The Pharisees were uh, religious leaders people very dedicated in that time to the worship of God, to Torah, to God's written word, and they were very assiduous about following, trying to follow God and his word. So they read it, they memorized it, they knew it, and so when they see Jesus talking about God, often they come to him, and more often than not, they came in a critical spirit, feeling that Jesus and his followers weren't really doing it right. And so, in the moment right before what we occurred today, they had that moment when some Pharisees came to Jesus, Right, they don't really get him, and they ask him point blank, "If you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, show us a sign, do a miracle right now, and prove that you are who you say you are." And even though it's easy to criticize the Pharisees, you know, looking at the at the gospel in that. In that moment of them asking Jesus to show a sign, I I do have some sympathy. Because I think if you are engaged in a genuine spiritual journey, a genuine faith, there are times in your life when you've also asked that question. At least I know I am. God, Jesus, if you are, who I've been told you are, who on Sundays I say you are, and I'm in this tough moment, man, it would be really good if you could just sort of intervene. In History in this one in my room right now, show me a miracle to tell me it's going to be okay or to show me that you're real and this is all just some kind of delusion that would be awesome Jesus show so I know that at least for me also for myself i've had that moment, and I think in honest spirituality you probably come across that too. He wants Jesus to do a miracle, but I guess unsurprisingly Jesus says to the Pharisees, no, I'm not going to be giving you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is a sign of Jonah, where he was in the belly of a a fish for three days. That's the only thing you're going to get. Which is kind of like, for them, a (laughs) non-answer. What does that mean? So he said, no, cryptic message, and then walks off, sits down with his friends, and then he asks them, hey, who do people say I am? And then they give him answers. They have a litany of Uh, prophets, of sages, wise teachers. I think people say that you're one of those people, a really good teacher. And then Jesus narrows it down. Okay, but who do you say I am? And then Peter, blessed Peter, first to speak up. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah, in case you don't know, is a very important title, is you um, a political figure, think of it as a king, who is going to set things right. If things are wrong in this world, and the Messiah is the person that we're looking for, longing for. When that Messiah, that person comes, they're going to set everything right. And Peter and his people, the ancient Jewish people, had been longing for this Messiah to arrive for hundreds of years. Facing oppression, facing hard, extremely hard moments in their lives they're so longing for this individual to show up. And through his life, his ministry, he's been, Jesus has been doing all the teaching and miracles, and finally Peter comes to a moment and he says, you are the one we've been longing for. Like he saw it for the first time. You're the one. And as he says that, Jesus very wonderfully he blesses Peter. Can you imagine that? Jesus himself blessing. him. He blesses Peter. And he says, what you just said, flesh and blood didn't teach you that. That's been revealed to you by God. In other words, what the Pharisees were asking for, an intervention by God, to show them a sign, has been given to you, Peter. You Something has been revealed to you. And your life is going to be transformed. Because you notice he changed his name. He's empowered. He's put in a new vocation. His life is transforming right before everyone's eyes. So when we see that moment, in terms of what we've been discussing the past few Sundays, when we look at what Peter did, that you're the Messiah, the Son of God. That right there is kind of the shape the, of the Christian life right there. A Christian is meant to be able to say, considering Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, the one that I've been longing for, the one, in fact, that we've all in the world been longing for to set things right, you're that person. That's you. That's the Christian posture. And yet, I think, if we're honest, I'll speak for myself as well, it doesn't always feel like we can say that. Some mornings you wake up, you think, oh, I don't know. The world's kind of really messed up or my life is really struggling right now. And sometimes it feels hard to de- be so declarative the way Peter is. Maybe we kind of just whisper it. Or maybe we just sort of hold it in my mind's intention. You're the Messiah? is a question more than a statement. So how do we? I mean, if you're Seeing Peter, hopefully you're asking yourself at this point, well, how do I get to a place where I can say, like, Peter, you're the Messiah that's in the now? Right? Because Christians are trying to, if we're not there, we're trying to get there. How do we get there? Wouldn't it be just easier, Seth, if God just gave me a sign? Because if it shows a miracle right now, then I'll believe. Right? Isn't that tempting to say that? If you just did a miracle right now, ah, hallelujah, hands up, I'd be in. Can I ask you two reasons why I think Jesus doesn't show the sign to the Pharisees or to us? Thought experiment, Can you do that? Two. One, I think it comes from the Bible, the Bible itself. I think Jesus doesn't show the Pharisees a sign because he is well aware that miracles and signs don't produce followers. Not naturally, no. You know? Jesus fed 5,000 one time, 4,000 another. Tons of food, bread and fish. And the moment he wasn't feeding them food, he walked away. Jesus was openly murdered, lynched by the Roman government. So he was killed by a government who were experts at killing. So they didn't didn't, didn't make a mistake. They killed him on a Roman cross. He was buried three days later. He rose from the dead. And the Bible says that 500 people saw him alive. And many of those saw Jesus, like, hey, it's Jesus. He's back. "Ah, I'm going to go. I'm going to. Not following no, I'm good. Just went backwards, went back to their lives. Only a few remained. I promise to you, I'm confident I would put the mortgage on red. That if today, this morning, in the sky, the writing appeared, Jesus is the only really true God and the Ten Commandments are excellent rules, and you should follow Jesus and go to St. George's. If that happened on the sky, many people would see that, and some people might turn to Jesus out of fear. Not genuine following, but afraid for their lives. And many others would curse and hate God and resent it. That that's i In fact, not too so long ago, in the New York Times, a book review, I don't know if you would follow that, but I enjoy it. Uh, a very, uh, well, popular in the philosophy world, Christian philosopher wrote a book about Christianity and science, and it was reviewed by none other than Thomas Nagel, who at the time was a professor of philosophy at NYU. It's a pretty big deal when it comes uh, to those heady matters. And he reviewed the book. And it was an excellent review. And at the end, he says, what bothers me, well, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he says what makes me uncomfortable is that some of the most well-informed people that I know are Christians. And he says, I see the logic of this book, and he, it's well-argued, but he speaks very honestly. He got a lot of flack for this. He said, I I don't believe this because I don't want the universe to be this way. I don't want this to be true. I don't want it to be the case that there's a God that's created us and we owe some kind of allegiance and responsibility and relationship to the Creator. I don't want the universe to be this way. And therefore, he's well, at least an agnostic. Right? And, and that's a very, I mean, he got a lot, he still gets heat for that, but I think it's very honest. Because what he put in print in the New York Times is true for many of us, including Christians. There's a part of us that said, I don't want Jesus to be the right one, the real one. I don't want a Messiah. I don't want to have to talk to him and, and change my life. Right? Because Peter's changed. But I don't, I don't know. I like my life. I like the way things are, the way I think about it. I don't want to have it challenged. And that's a problem. Which is, I think, the reason why God doesn't just do miracles. We end up hating. Some of us would end up hating him. No, God has done it just the right way. See, when the Pharisees were asking for that sign, what what they were essentially asking for is, Jesus, I want you to do a miracle so that I can increase my analytic knowledge of you, but I do not want my life to be changed. I like things the way they are. I want knowledge without transformation. But that is never but God has ever been interested in offering us from the beginning. We were created from the first to have a relationship with God and have that relationship of life and love transform us in beautiful ways to be gardeners on this earth and to love each other. And to love has been transformed. Because to love is to create space for the other and to journey with the other and to the ups and downs of life be molded to the other. So you're changing Or you can isolate yourself, assert yourself over the other, remain static, and only siphon knowledge from others, but not be transformed. And that is the essence of what breaks the relationships that we have in this world. That's what the Pharisees wanted. And they got nothing. Except the sign of Jonah, which we'll talk about in a second. That's what you're going to get. But then to Peter, when he asks Peter, who do you say I am? And then Peter replies, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter is opening his eyes and saying, you're, you're it. Everything that I thought I needed, everything that I've been looking for in this life, all the puzzles that I've been trying to solve, the meaning of life, the purpose of my existence, now I'm seeing it for the first time, and it's you. Jesus, it's you. How did Peter get there? Because maybe this morning you can say that. And maybe this morning you can't. I'm going to tell you right now, cards on the table. What Peter said is absolutely right. He's exactly what each one of us needs. So really, we should all be longing to get to where Peter is. How do we get to that place where we can say that? Peter did something that the Pharisees never did. I'm going to show you what it is. Peter got to that place Notice that Jesus says that what you just said, no flesh and blood revealed to you. That means that he didn't get it in a book. It wasn't for careful study of philosophy and theology. It wasn't going to the right uh, web searches. It was given to him. How why would it be given to him? Because Peter, before he was asked, chose to be a disciple of Jesus. He chose to follow Jesus. He didn't have all the answers, but he began the journey with Jesus and he followed him. He watched and he listened. And in that journey of faith and trust, of obedience, because when you're a student from a teacher, it implies that you're obeying the teacher, right? If you've studied anything to have any kind of competence in this world, right, many things aren't optional. You're given an assignment. You must do the assignment. And if you do the assignment, you gain skills, right? You learn something and then you're granted whatever title or degree. But in a deeper, more beautiful way, Peter chooses to follow Jesus There's a path of obedience. And as he lives that path of obedience, at the crucial and necessary time, God reveals to Peter exactly what he needs to see an experience of the divine, a vision of what's true, capital T, true for all humanity. He saw it and he was able to say it. And when he said it Jesus right there says, I'm going to bless you right now and your life's going to be transformed. Who you were now is past. You are a new being. New name. New calling. You were a fisherman. Now you're going to be a leader in the church, which is my body, my blessing for the world. Radical change. You're going to now have a life. Before you were to catch fish, you were going to get yourself some fish and make a little bit of money. Now you're going to live a life that's going to be so beautiful and transform so many people because of me that 2,000 years later, they're going to be reading your writings and considering your life. I'm transforming your life right now. That's how we do it. Not that I'm trying to give you a technique of how to experience the divine. But if you want, if you're asking a question about God, who is God? What does that even mean? Analytic knowledge will only take you so far. right? Intellectual exploration will only take you so far. And I'm not saying don't do that. I thrive on that. I love that journey. But as St. Anselm said, it's faith seeking understanding. First, you take a step in faith. I see something beautiful. I'm not sure if it's real, but I want to take, start this journey. I want to journey with Jesus. I don't have all the answers. I'm journeying with Jesus. you are doing that in good, in good faith, with honesty, right? Not like the Pharisees testing Jesus. We don't believe you are, but show me. Not that—that's trash. But actually, open to the possibility of something new intervening in your life. Jesus will show up and show you. And then we'll have a new one. As St. Paul points out in Romans to wrap up, we will live lives of living sacrifices, which is a very awkward thing to say. But that's the shape of the life that we need. Because God, seeing us in our brokenness and our loneliness, came to the world of Jesus and he offered his life as a sacrifice for us. We were headed to destruction. And by giving his life, he'll be able to rescue us from the path of destruction and death and offer us a way of love, life, and peace. That's what Jesus has done. And he says, and if you follow me, if you want to see a vision of the divine, you will also live a life of living sacrifice. Notice living there. Jesus died. I'm not calling you to die that way. Living sacrifice. That means that the bloated self, the self that we obsess over, over uh, obnoxious desires and selfish motivations, we put that on the beer on the fire. And that is sacrifice. That's destroyed the, the self that remains. The self that God loves and created the itself. That it gives itself for the other. The way Jesus has given Himself for us. That's the shape of life that we need to have. If you're married, it's only when you sacrifice for your partner and give for them, not keeping a talent, but just giving, that you have a chance for that marriage to work. We experience that in our lives as a married couple. I'm sure you have too. But that's not just for marriage. That's for anything this world. Right? We talk about it here in Banff all the time with local leaders. We have a housing crisis. We have limited, all land that we can build houses on are built. Many people here can't afford to even live here. Right? Well, what's the problem? We have a few... Uh, major companies or individuals have a lot of money and own a lot of property here and they're not, what, they're not giving way, they're not making space for other people. And there we go to the meetings or town council, we have all these talks, so why not? Well, because there's no vision of why should they give up their money? Why should they turn their dollar to $1.10? What compelling vision could you give them for them to do that? Oh, because it's good, but why is it good? Because it is. And that's the limits of the secular vision. But if you turn to Jesus, he says, it's good because I'm good. And I'm showing you the way to live. You actually self-sacrifice for the other. And that's the shape of life we need to have as Christians. A living sacrifice. But that life won't make sense. You will only embody that if you can first point and say, I live this life because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And I've been given this revelation because I've trusted Jesus. And Jesus, God has given me to me. I do not lift myself up when I'm on good trips. I'm solely trusting in Jesus. It's not fabricated by your mind. It's a gift of God. So my friends, today and every day, but today we're here together. We're about to go pray. We're going to the Lord's table, which is a church praying. And then we're going to come forward and we're going to receive the bread. I invite you to pray. If you're in a place where you're wondering well, what is who is God, what is God, What's all about. Or maybe you're a little ahead in the journey and say, well, I see Jesus, but I'm not sure what to do with Jesus. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus a long time and you still have a question. What about you here? But I would invite you to come to God, to Jesus, Christ. pray. Bring your heart to Him. Say, God, I'm asking these questions. I'm following you or I want to follow you. Like Peter, can you reveal to me who you are? I don't want to be like a Pharisee asking just because I want to test you. I genuinely want to know in good faith. Who are you? Show me. And the promise of God is He will. And you can trust. Him. So let's pray. Gracious and loving God, Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our busy lives, the questions that come from our hearts that stay there sometimes and they come up and fade away. But who you are? God, who are you? What are you? Can you trust me? God, in the midst of all that, you are right there. You're with us, God. Whether we recognize you or not, whether we sense your presence or not, you are faithful and you're always there. God, I pray that for each person in this room, you know the questions of their hearts, the needs of their soul. God, I pray that you would meet us over at, show us who you are, God, if there's anything in our life that is blocking us hearing your voice, I pray that you can remove that. Help us to know you. Help us to understand you. Help us to love you. Not just to hoard knowledge selfishly, but to be empowered to live lives and living sacrifices of love in this world. This we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.